Hello listeners and welcome back to the 20th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host Adam Scully and we have another exciting episode for you all today. The quarterfinals are now finished and we're down to our final four teams of the competition. It seems like only yesterday that the World Cup started, but by the end of this week it will be all over for another four years and may sadly be the last time it will even be recognised as the contest we all grew to love. A massive shock took place on Friday as Brazil exited the competition via penalties against Croatia. However, another massive surprise occurred yesterday in the early kickoff. Morocco defeated Portugal 1 0, becoming the first African nation to reach the semis in history. An incredible fairy tale story for Valid Regregui and his Moroccan side. Portugal bow out, leaving Cristiano Ronaldo in floods of tears at what is likely his last ever World Cup appearance. Meanwhile, in the late kickoff, supporters were treated to a clash of the Titans as reigning champions France took on an elated England. The title holders came out on top, sending the three lines out early and causing many to ask questions about Gareth Soke and his ability to trump the best of the best. France will now take on Morocco in the second confirmed semi-final, something I didn't think I'd be saying before the tournament commenced. In this episode, we will tactically review both games from Saturday, and there is a lot to get into. But thankfully, I'm joined by TFA analyst Satish Prasad, as well as Ronnie Dog Media's head of betting and affiliates, Lucas Mondello. But before we get into the tactics from each game, Lucas will be going through the latest odds on the betting market regarding each team. And so we ask to make sure that you gamble responsibly when taking the advice on board, and also make sure you're over 18 and that you comply with the gambling regulations of your country. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Lucas, Satish, thank you so much for joining me today to review yesterday's unbelievable fixtures. We'll start with the um, well, the latest giant killing, I suppose, and it also features Morocco once again, just like they knocked out Spain last week. Or no, not last week, I think it was Tuesday. They've now knocked out uh, Portugal, which is quite a surprise considering this is one of Portugal's, or was one of Portugal's best opportunities to win the World Cup in quite a long time. And now they're, well, they're Sam Pack and Cristiano Ronaldo came off the the pitch in, in tears. He had a decent opportunity himself near the end, and it it, it was kind of on the run, so it was difficult to get any lift, I suppose, on the shot. Satish, I'll come to you first. Then, well, actually, talk about Morocco. <laughs> One goal conceded throughout the entire tournament, and it was an own goal. Yeah. Talk to me yeah, about yeah, their yeah. defensive resilience. Firstly, I think that's been their key. This tournament because yeah of course the one goal they consider is also was a home goal it was not their goal and I think while we are pitching for our pitches on our side we I remember I think it was you you were like I'm, I want to talk about that but there is chances they might concede concede against Portugal right so so that shows how like how it how that shows how the result was unexpected but again mm-hmm. Morocco I think they did a very good like they did I mean they but good at what they did. So that's how I have to play it because yeah. it's not easy. Like in terms of possession, to be off the ball like for a major amount of time, to constantly give in the 100%, I think it's not an easy task. And at, at the same time, I think this time their transition to attack was better than when it was against Spain because partially it could be because of how Portugal got frustrated towards the end. You know, like there was, was one 1v1 one one chance in the end where Morocco could have like killed mm. the game, but they, they couldn't convert. But I think on an overall view, I think they, they were right with their tactics. Like apart from the red card, you know, even even after they got the red card in the last final extra time, I think they did 
a really good job uh, and they were also able to create six chances whereas portugal were able to create nine chances and if you actually look at the expected goal tally i think portugal they had a lesser expected goal than morocco so yeah and something amrabat i think he's been very a key player to their side you know how in this 4141 formation he occupies the role to fill in the space you know like to make the key interceptions so i think morocco are a team with a mission this world cup and they have been ticking the boxes speaking of sofian amrabat i wrote a piece myself on friday i believe i published it and it's about sofian amrabat and his role within morocco's tactics and his why he's been in my opinion the best player at the 22 fifa world cup he has been absolutely exceptional and people may think that's a strange statement to make and i feel strange even saying that sofian amrabat has been the best player at the world cup it sounds mental but it's so true he is actually genuinely exceptional i've watched him for fiorentina and he plays in kind of a two with uh, rolando mandragora i believe and and he's still really good he actually has more license to get forward for fiorentina because he's in a two essentially so if he goes up you still have mandragora back defending and you can kind of you you can have a bit more of that license for morocco it's pretty much in your own half stuff because he's you know he doesn't venture forward being the number 6 they need him there in front of the back line but in terms of defense yeah. like defensive work it's exceptional but also his like his his role on the ball is just as important his progression with the ball it's not just he's this big bald guy sitting in front of the back line winning all the all his challenges it's not he's he's on the ball he's progressing play he's breaking lines he's circulating the ball out wide he's switching it to the wingers to the fullbacks anyone truly yeah. a, a joy to watch the world cup so far and if you want to check out that piece it's on the TFA website um and let me know what you think because i think he's been the best player of the tournament satish so just just talking about portugal then well we spoke about morocco and how good they are defensively portugal couldn't break them down and they they didn't look great what went wrong then for portugal because they literally are coming in to this game off the back of a 6-1 victory against switzerland where they looked electric and then they yeah. just were completely shut down and had no ideas so i think the reason why portugal couldn't you know like explore the final third is probably because how low the defensive line of morocco was because they were so compact that the attackers of portugal had no like no room to dribble or no space i think that's where bruno fernandes and joao felix struggled a bit but they were able to create chances they were scoring opportunities you know like i think there's a header by joao felix from a set piece that he should have converted and there's a shot by bruno fernandes so i think there were goal scoring chances like they had chances but in terms of creating more like could have, i think their uh, attacking power was limited because of morocco's strike defensive line and i personally feel ronaldo should have played this game right from the start because i think a player with such caliber and experience you know like irrespective of his form i think he is the kind of player just by being on the pitch you know mm-hmm. like could bring out the best from his teammates so you know like constantly cheering them up like from like apart from the tactical point of view like morally also i think just by being there i think he could have changed the game a bit so that i personally feel ronaldo should have played from the beginning but in terms of tactical point of view i give full credits to morocco because it's i feel it's because of how compact they were like i already mentioned you know just having the ball for 27 percentage and moving constantly off the ball for 73 percentage without you know 
without making constant mistakes because people usually off the ball we tend to like i mean they have been doing it for like it's been their tactic right so they they're literally running all game like majority of the games without the ball so to do it constantly i think credit should go to them i think that is their defensive way is what limited portugal's attack and especially morocco their way of playing is to push portugal like not just portugal any opponents to their flanks like they restrict attacks coming through the center so when they do that there's this being if you notice you could see they pretty much you know like gather around the flanks they try to create the numerical superiority to win the ball back and like you said morocco's progression is good but it's in the final pass i think they personally lack and towards the end portugal you know they made a lot of attacking substitutions you know so i think that's where it, with that much of attacking substitution i think they had to pass the ball into the final third you know that's what i because there's no point in having so much attacking players up front and not having the ball with them you know because it felt like they kept crossing the ball they kept the goalkeeper kept going for long yeah. balls so i think it was like probably if they were able to progress the ball with that much attacking players like by keeping the ball on ground it could have made a difference but towards the end it felt like they lost the pool they were in a rush because they were so desperate to get that what goal you know mm-hmm. yeah it's expecting that usually happens but i personally felt if they could have kept their calm and if they moved the ball you know even if it's just one chance even if just one small opening within the last second they could have made use of it but going for long balls constantly kind of killed it in relation to the ronaldo issue i agree a little bit because ultimately regardless of what people say about him he scored over 800 goals in his career and he's one of the greatest of all time but then again i also see santos's point of view that the team have just won 6-1 that he doesn't really want to change that you know the the lineup essentially because they 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 played so well against Switzerland so i suppose hindsight is 2020 and you're you're damned if you do damned if you don't and then unfortunately they were knocked out and uh, lucas before we talk about fernando santos himself morocco are into the semi-finals of the world cup the first ever african nation to make it that far I can't quite believe I'm saying that Morocco are into a semi-finals, considering Regragui just took over four months before the World Cup uh, began, and now they've knocked out Portugal and, and 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 or Spain and Portugal, and they're into the semis. What are their odds to win it outright? Because while it still may seem ludicrous, they're one of four teams left. Eleven to one, and um, yeah, there are some even crazier things in in this World Cup. I mean. I had written a piece these days that, um, you know, pointed how Group F had produced two, it, it was the only one that had produced two teams in the quarterfinals and none of these teams were Belgian. And now we have Group F having produced two teams in the semifinals and none of these teams are Belgian. So who would expect that in the beginning of the tournament? These are those odds that don't even exist because not even the bookies can, you know, come up with this stuff in advance. Who would have thought that the World Cup final, or sorry, I should say the the, the opening game of Group F between Morocco and Croatia would just be a warm-up for the World Cup final. And that was a pretty... That was a pretty dull game of football, so I'd, I'd I'd like to think that if 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 it does happen, there would be a little bit more spice to the game. But anyway, we we will talk about Fernando Santos because he did a press conference yesterday. The journalist asked him would he resign, and he said resigning is basically 
roughly translated, resigning's not in my dictionary or not in our dictionary, he said something like that. So resigning's not in, not on the cards. He clearly what I would imagine is that if he gets sacked, he would get compensation. Which of course is fine. It would be you know, he's won two international trophies with Portugal, so that's you know, deserves what he, he gets, I suppose. It's unlikely that he continues past this tournament. Lucas, I'll come to you. I'm not going to ask you like I did again with Luis Enrique and with Chiche about, you know, has has Santos been a failure? Because he hasn't. The 2016 Euros, they won the UEFA Nations League then in 2019, I believe. That's two international uh, trophies. And I don't think any other side in the world have won as many in that space of time. But I suppose... The, the way I should phrase this is has he has he got the best out of the players that are available to him really over the last well since the twenty eighteen World Cup I think it's fair to to say. Well, I guess there is one important thing to to ask ourselves, which is how much of a of a manager Ronaldo you know himself was in in this time because when he picked up the injury in the final in 2016 he was you know standing up together with the coach you know giving orders to the team just like Fernando Santos and back in the, in the occasion the manager himself didn't you know care much about this he said that okay Ronaldo is a leader he was nervous he was it was okay to be by my side but um, the impression of the, that image that the work got was that Ronaldo had the, a bit of the leadership role of the manager himself. Mm -hmm. So I guess it was somewhat surprising to see that, okay, Ronaldo had complained about the substitution, but to actually see him paying for that by being benched was, you know, a bit too harsh. And I don't know if there was some kind of uh, sympathetic attitude of uh, Fernando Santos in relation to what happened in, in back at the at the club level with Ronaldo. So I I don't know. It's it, it really shocked me when he didn't feel Ronaldo against Switzerland. And okay, he got lucky once, but. Uh, if you have the chance of you know getting Portugal once again in the semifinals, you gotta use the best that you have. I think it became a matter of pride in in a very stupid way. There is no other word to put in this, in my opinion, and they kind of paid for it in, in this game. I was trying to rack my brain as to who may kind of replace Santos really and. There's some great Portuguese coaches out there, but guys like Ruben Amarim and, and and Jose Mourinho, I don't think will be very keen to take over international sides anytime soon. I mean, Amarim, I think, is, is still in his 30s. I think he's 39. So I doubt he'll be um, very willing to step into international management. There are guys like Jorge Jesus that are out there that might be you know, willing to, to take over the international side. Paulo Bento is available again, although he isn't so... Uh, highly thought of among Portugal's ranks for his failure in 2014. There are no odds, as we already checked before, on uh, who will replace Santos, so we won't discuss really that that side yet, so we'll leave it up to the viewers will be, or the listeners will be very uh, 
keen to hear on who you believe should take over from Santos. But we will move on to last night's game. France 2, England 1. Harry Kane will have nightmares about his penalty. That sky that rocketed to the moon in, in a manner that reminded me very much of, I believe it was Sergio Ramos in 2013 with Real Madrid, where his penalty knocked Real Madrid out of the semi-final of the Champions League and I think it went into space, it went into orbit. England are out. Lucas, talk to me just briefly then on France's odds. Are they back to being the favourites really since Brazil are out and I know Argentina were the favourites yesterday but are have France reclaimed their, their place in the throne? Yes, they have odds of 2.1 on average while Argentina has 2.63 so, yeah, it's reflecting what happened. You know, the biggest game of the quarterfinals was important to, to change these odds. And uh, I must mention about this game that I, I say sorry to all of my English friends for the, you know... The... No, I don't. No, 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 I, no. no. I Brazilian referees' behavior is something that ashames me. And uh, regardless of the result, even if France had won, I would say the same thing to... To, to you know everyone I know in France because this is uh, it was hard to watch but that's the, the you know level of quality of uh, referees that we get in Brazil these days and uh, I'm simply sorry to see someone you know carrying a Brazilian passport doing something like that in a World Cup. It seems to be quite a topic and I don't want to discuss referees on this podcast because I just find that the the conversation mundane, but it does seem to be a, a quite heavy topic so far in the quarterfinals. I mean, you have Matteo Lahash, who I covered very much in depth on yesterday's podcast because I very much dislike uh, Matteo Lahash as a referee. And then you have the referee from last night, you have the referee from the Portuguese game, who the Portugal players accused of being Argentinian. Argentinian, yeah. Uh, which he is Argentinian. It's not an accusation. Uh, it's kind of reality. I, I know what they were hinting at. You know, because Portugal and Argentina have a weird rivalry where it's Messi versus Ronaldo, even though Portugal and Argentina don't really have any geographical, you know, disdain for each other. So, teach anyway, I won't discuss the referees. We'll talk about the actual happenings of the game. I don't think it's unfair to say this was England's <laughs> probably one of their best displays under Soke. And when I mean best displays, I mean against a really top side. It's not as if they. It's not Senegal, it's not Wales or Iran where they they should have won. This is France who, I would imagine France were the favourites going into this match. England were the underdogs and yet they held nearly 60% of the ball. I think it was 58% or something like that. Talk to me yeah, then about, yeah, talk to me about how England, how England did really tactically, how they set up to look to kind of break France down. France, France sat relatively deeper than I thought they would. So, uh, I think England actually like this like, performed very well. Like if you take take a look at all their games right from the start, I think this game was very much interesting. And I think this very good. Although I personally felt, you know, like the team selection the team formation and selection maybe could have changed. I because I expected England to go with the five men defense because you know that way they could sub like like stop Dembele and Mbappe on the flanks. At the same time, I felt like they would have some numeric like numerical superiority, you know, with five defenders at back they'll have like two v one situations to stop them, so I was a bit surprised when Southgate went with the four three three formation. And yeah, you were right. England like pretty much 
you know, controlled the game. They had 58 percentage of possession, and France was were happy to sit back. You know, like there were times they went up to press, but it was like partial press. But majority of the game, they were happy to sit back. They maintained a low defensive line, and even in terms of chance, like even in terms of shot, shots taken, England were able to take 48 shots on total, whereas France were only able to take eight shots on total. So in that way, I think. England pretty much, you know, they were able to dominate the game. But it was in the final third, I think they kind of struggled because in spite of having so much possession, they were able to manage only eight touches in France's penalty area. But whereas if you look at France, they managed to take 80, 16 touches inside England's penalty area, which shows pretty much how threatening they were with the possession and how less threatening England were. And why I personally felt, you know, like what England actually did is when they were in a 4-3-3 formation while attacking they slowly switched to a 3-4-3 so when they switched to a 3-4-3 what they did was you know try Kyle Walker stayed back in order to you know like still you know counter Mbappe's mm-hmm. you know like burst on and he did know? he did really well to be to, to his credit yeah, yeah, I mean yeah, Mbappe yeah. was pretty a top pretty poor throughout the game Kyle Walker did yeah, a really good job they did very good to you know like silence Mbappe I mean there's there's nothing wrong like I mean there's nothing against it but what I personally thought was if they went with a four. I mean, if they went with a five-three-two formation, this way, if Kyle Walker is at the edge, he could probably have had the freedom to go up while the defense was still, you know, like still covered. Because this one instance where Kyle Walker went up, you know, like like France punished England. So this that could have been avoided. Similar to how when Argentina was playing with a five men at the back, you know, like how Molina had the freedom to go up, but at the same time he was also defending. So this way. I think if probably if they had gone with the five men at the back, you know, that could have changed. But at the same time, France were really, really good. I think some, I think Griezmann's free role has a very important thing to do. Griezmann, so I, so I, I actually wrote uh, something yesterday as in a partnership with TFA. Um, and I spoke about Griezmann. He went to Barcelona in 2019 as a, a centre forward, really, slash a winger, you know, and, and, and really struggled. He did really struggle. Came back to Atletico Madrid, his tail between his legs. But it wasn't as if his time at the new camp was wasted because he learned some serious, valuable skills from playing with guys like Lionel Messi, like Sergio Busquets. He came back. Now with France, he seemed to reinvent himself almost at 31, which is quite difficult to do. But when you think back of great players throughout the years, guys like, um, oh, should I say his name? Ryan Giggs. <laughs> And obviously, when he was when he lost his pace, he became more of a midfielder. He became a central midfielder because you got that. And I think uh, Giggs worked with a, a vision coach or something. It was along them lines to help him with his vision so he could see the game more, which sounds bizarre. But as a winger, he was literally just on the half turn, ready to dart down the wing. Whereas as a midfielder, you need to be well. You need to, your vision needs to be so much better. So he was helping with his peripheral vision. Griezmann now has done something similar. He's gone from being a centre forward who finishes off chance or a winger who puts balls into the box. And obviously he got this yeah, he still does that. But he's more of a number ten now, he's a creator, but he's not just a number ten, he drops deep. He's almost like an attacking. Exactly. He, he's he like does an attacking everything, eight. Right? Yeah, he's like an attacking yeah. eight. It's amazing to watch. And I love I love that progression. He Griezmann really has struggled as a centre forward in the last couple of years. So he said, Right, so I need to basically reinvent myself. And he's done that. And he's, oh, he's, yeah, 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 he's yeah, one yeah. of the players of the tournament for me. It's been exceptional. 
Yeah, exactly. And thing is, like, he's having a silent game. And when while you are mentioning his kind of playing like a role, I just I wanted to mention that he was doing just more than what a ten does. And you actually yeah. like rightly mentioned it because he's everywhere. And I think that's a very good advantage that France has, like his versatility. While defending, it's actually I think yesterday it was in a four-five. You know, like I mean four. Uh, four two like they were defending a four four two and at times it was four four one because Griezmann was everywhere. You know when there's support needed in the flanks he's there. When the supported support needed in the defense he's there. Like pretty much he's filling in the hole while defending and he's yeah. also giving the touch that needs while attacking. And the reason why he failed, you know, being a Barcelona fan, and the reason why he failed at Barcelona was because he was there at the same time when Messi was there. And they both were like footed, so it pretty much meant they both were going to fit in the same spot. And I don't think Griezmann was never a Barcelona guy, you know, like in terms of tactical way of playing and his skill set. Because Griezmann is not someone who could dribble like a lot of players. Like his vision is good. That the reason why I like Griezmann is like when he plays, the tempo is fast. You know, you like you you could never see him hold possession for more than a second because. He he's the kind of player even before when the ball arrives he knows what to do he like he constantly scans for players I think that this is asset but that is why France you know with France when he gets the ball he quickly you know like unexpectedly like, without the opponents don't expect him to do this he makes this quick passes he's able to combine I think like I mean the first one I wouldn't give it, give credits to him because you know it was completely a very good strike but he was the one who passed you know that adds to his name as an assist you know? so he was the one who passed and the cross I think it's not the first time he's doing a similar cross into the box there's this Copa America I think he crossed it to PK it was a pretty much a similar situation you know so I think having Griezmann on the pitch is a very Great asset for France, and like you said, I think he's silently having a very good game, and this is possibly one of the best players this tour. Yeah, and just touching on the point you made about Kyle Walker, and obviously, yes, Kyle Walker was coming inside. Luke Shaw was the one bombing forward because, well, I'd I'd imagine Southgate saw Mbappe as more of a threat than Dembele. So, okay, if Luke Shaw gets cut out of position, it's not as damaging as if Kyle Walker does because. Kyle Walker has Mbappe and Dembele is a fantastic player and I don't mean to take any credit away but I'd rather have Dembele on the loose than an Mbappe because Mbappe is absolutely lethal so Kyle Walker sat very deep basically as a third centre-half but that meant that Bukayo Saka was isolated on the right-hand side so Southgate needed to exactly. find a way to kind no. of help that so Jordan Henderson would do his Liverpool role which he does really well he becomes so what Jordan Henderson does for Liverpool is he creates triangles with uh, Mo Salah and Trent Alexander-Arnold on the right-hand side, and he makes those overlapping and underlapping runs. He did that for England yesterday, and he was had a pretty decent game silently because people what people didn't realize is look at the the, the penalty for the fourth goal I think England scored the, the only yeah, goal yeah. England scored. It's from Henderson overlapping, Saka pushing inside. Henderson lobs the ball into Saka, takes a touch, and gets fouled. It it, it did work for England. Saka as well. It gave Saka help, and he had almost free license then to have an excellent game because Henderson's runs would drag French players away, allowing them to cut inside. Saka was excellent. I think Gareth Southgate gets a bit of a bad rap for. I don't. I don't know why. I mean, I understand he hasn't won an international tournament yet, despite getting to the semis, the quarters, and then a, a final, obviously in in the Euros. He does get a bit of stick for people say he's tactically clueless, which is just not true. Is it? I mean, this. Yeah, I think yesterday was too good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they were really good yesterday. If Harry Kane converts his penalty and doesn't blast it out of the stadium, I mean, ultimately they probably go on to win the game. I've seen some nonsense online, and look, I'm not a massive fan of Gareth Southgate. I really am. I don't mean to 
be disrespectful to him. I don't dislike him, nor do I like him. I think he's a decent international manager. Um, but some of the nonsense I'm reading online is just ridiculous. Like people say, I, I, I won't even read out what people are saying because it's just it's absolute nonsense, and it's it's such um, it's such what aboutism. It's such after after the hap- it's happened kind of stuff. Like okay, if Harry Kane scores, it's two all, and then they probably go on and win, and then they probably win the World Cup because I don't think anyone else bar France were stopping England in that in that World Cup. Yeah. You know, so again, I think England did really well in this tournament. They were quite unfortunate yesterday not to walk away with to, to at least take the game to extra time. I think it's fair to say, Lucas. Speak speaking of of, of Southgate, that we do have odds for, I suppose the next manager to replace Southgate because a lot of international teams have now, I suppose, moved on from their managers. Luis Enrique's gone, Chiche's gone, you know, uh, uh, Fernando Santos is kind of on the ropes, really. Roberto Martinez with Belgium, of course, has gone too. Paolo Bento, South Korea's gone. Who takes over them in the eyes of the betting market? Who are the favourites to take over them from Gareth Southgate? Graham Potter now has the lowest odds, meaning he is the most likely one in the eyes of the betting market. Not, not exactly the markets, I would say the sports books, because it's too early. So in this kind of market, they pretty much come up with new odds and see how people affect the markets with their own betting. And um, yeah, he has odds of 72, which is the equivalent of... 3.5 in, in the decimal system. Then we have Eddie Hope with um, 4 to 1. Then Mauricio Pochettino with 5 to 1. Steve Cooper with 6 to 1. And now in the region of underdogs, we have Frank Lampard and Steve Gerhardt with odds of um, 11 to 1 and 14 to 1, respectively. I was very surprised not to see, and I said this to you before the podcast started, Lee Carlsley being higher on that list. Lee Carlsley is the under-21s manager, a former Everton player. He's Irish also. It's pretty cool. But yeah, he's a uh, the under-21s manager, which Gareth Soke was before he took the job. England clearly have a path of progression, which they're looking at now, where the under-21s manager will go on to manage the force team because they kind of develop those players and then when them players are ready they kind of take them through Gareth Southgate did it I'm really surprised to see some names on that list that are I suppose above or that have uh, lower odds really than, than Lee Carlsley because well for, for the reasons I just mentioned I find it peculiar that somebody would think that Stephen Gerrard would get the job more than, than Carlsley is that just simply because he he's unemployed <laughs> yeah these markets are complicated I mean there are Basically, two factors. One, which would be, you know, who's the ideal candidate? And then you have to consider the reality of the manager himself. For example, in Brazil, they include in these lists, um, not exactly for betting, but, you know, newspaper discussions, Guardiola, for example. But um, he's unlikely to leave the paychecks that he gets mm-hmm. in, in in Manchester. And... Um, the Brazilian Federation just won't pay 58 million euros a year as it was ventilated when, when there was a consultancy. Again, the press, it's not like it was, you know, something formally announced as, as you know, as a price that he had asked to to work for Brazil. 
but uh, yeah, I think it's very, very early, and you, they include the names just like at their heart's will at this stage. It, it doesn't really reflect. Well, I mean, David Beckham's on the list, which is fascinating because David Beckham's never managed a team before. David Beckham is also the owner of like two football clubs. There's no way he manages England's national team, but he's there. He also has four times less odds than Sam Allardyce, who is obviously uh, a former England manager as well, who managed one game before being sacked for taking uh oh uh allegedly actually i won't finish what i was going to say the accusation but allegedly he, he was sacked for illegal activity allegedly yeah i mean sometimes odds are released almost to make people laugh i mean <laughs> it, it wouldn't hurt to put the odds for you know king charles to to manage england or whatever <laughs> one name that is interesting here is serena weigman um she is the England women's manager who won the Euros in the summer. I think that would be an amazing appointment I would love to see, considering she's one of only two managers to win your uh, international trophies with uh, England. Obviously, next to Sir Ralph Ramsey. I think you're touching the nerve, Adam. <laughs> well, she, she, uh, she is well, but next to Sir Ralph Ramsey, obviously, in, 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 in 1966. Michael Owen's also on this list, which is, which is fascinating. But yeah, I, I, think, I don't think Gareth's okay will will be dismissed anytime soon. I think he'll be given it, you know, yeah, there's, there's no chance. I just don't believe he'll 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 be sacked to be honest. I think he's done a good enough job. He's he's he made he makes I I know it sounds redundant, but he makes people believe that they can or that, that, that England can actually do something in the World Cup. And as I said yesterday, they got knocked out of the quarterfinals, but it could have been very, very, very different. Lucas, Satish, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this chat. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. And make sure to tune in tomorrow as we preview the fourth semi-final between Argentina and Croatia. So make sure to check back in for that. And please share the podcast too as it really helps us grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.